Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Community. (laughs) Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. This podcast is brought to you by me, Mark Yacono, Untethered. This is episode number two, and I have a wonderful guest today. His name is Rich Bracken. As you know, the goal of today's podcast and every podcast that we have is to promote the well-being of our profession, not just by talking about what ails it, but talking about ways that make people in the profession healthier, both mentally and physically. Rich is a dynamic public speaker who passionately spreads the message on the interplay between high EQ, emotional wellness, and organizational success. He's a multifaceted human being. He was a DJ, a former event planner and marketing professional, a competitive athlete, and he's a performance coach. For more than 20 years, Rich has been researching how businesses and their teams rise and fall based on different styles of leadership and employee engagement. He brings a unique brand of passion and charisma while embracing a love of data at the same time. Rich, welcome to the show and thank you. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. And now I've got a whole lot to live up to after that description. So I need to to hire a new copywriter to tone myself down a little bit. (laughs) So this section of the podcast is called Rich on Rich. Can we hear your origin story, how you got to where you are today and in this passion that you've been pursuing for the last 20 years? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I think I have to go back and start when I was around five. Uh, And the reason being is because at five, I found a passion and my passion and still to this day, it's my passion is to become the host of The Price is Right. So that is my number one dream job in my entire life. And why that's important is that it feeds into the origin story because I realized looking back that I've never really had a fear of public speaking, stages, cameras, people like most people are terrified of that stuff. And I just have never had that. And so flash forward to about, I think it was around 2015. Um, I was working in a big law firm and as a business development professional and found out that law firms work at a different pace. They work at a different speed. They work at a different tenacity than most corporations do. And so I was trying to keep up with that. And I found myself burning the candle at both ends to a very dangerous pace. And that pace caught up with me one day when I was sitting in my office and all of a sudden had all the WebMD symptoms of a heart attack. And so I got up, walked by my boss's office and said, I'm going to the hospital. I don't know if I'm coming back because I literally thought I was dying at that time. And so I I left, sped down to the ER. Um, It was thankfully a slow day that day and wound up hooked up to an EKG machine, which I 10 out of 10 don't recommend. It's not a fun, it's not a fun trip, but uh, the the good news was, was that I was not having a, a heart attack, but the doctor told me the bad news was I was having a massive panic attack. And the serendipity here is that he started telling me about this thing called emotional intelligence. He goes, I've been leveraging it for myself. You know, I highly recommend this book that you ought to read just to kind of learn more about it. He goes, but I can't stress enough how much it'll help you with your anxiety because we had talked about my work schedule and not. And so I started studying it. Now, where the serendipitous part comes in is that as I started learning more about emotional intelligence, doing more research, studying more about it, come to find out doctors have the lowest emotional intelligence of any profession (laughs) coming in second, as we can probably all guess, are attorneys. And so finding that one doctor in that one ER that met me where I was at the time to introduce me to this thing was, to me, serendipitous. It 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 was an act of just complete you know, cosmic, whatever you want to believe in. What yeah. was the book he recommended? So the book he recommended was Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Dr. Travis Bradbury, uh, which I still, I've I've not only bought that copy of my of the book, uh, he's got a new book out called Emotional Intelligence Habits, which is fantastic. Um, I think I've gifted that book probably 50 times now in the last almost 10 years. Um, but, you know, from that point forward, where the intersection comes back into play from the five-year-old story is that, I realized that I did not have this fear of speaking, that I was learning this thing that was universally applicable, especially in our industry, in the legal industry. And so I had to do something with this information. And I signed up to speak at a legal uh, performance conference. It was um, it was basically project management and finance people within law firms. 
Um, I my title my in the, in the agenda stuck out like a sore thumb because everything else was project management, Lean Six Sigma, and all these other things. And there's Rich right before lunch with emotional intelligence, and I thought, okay, this room is either going to be empty or absolutely packed because there's there's just no gray area here. And when I had wall to wall people in that room and blew open some great conversations after the fact, I was like, I'm onto something here. And it's just taken off from there because I feel like we still have a long way to go on the mental health and mental wellness conversations in any industry, but specifically the legal, the legal industry. Yeah, you're so right. And, and for the last three years, I've had the privilege of having an episode with Gina Passarella, who's the editor-in-chief mm-hmm. of ALM, mm-hmm. and a mental health advocate called Mike Kasdan. And frankly, it's been very unfortunate that the ALM mental health survey data for the legal profession has uh, remained unmoved in terms of the wellness of the profession. Um, is it, It's in crisis. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. And I think that what I saw during the pandemic, because I got to, you know, was in a law firm at the time, but I was also speaking with different organizations within the legal industry. And what was fascinating to me was that there were, there were really kind of two camps. There was the camp that had some leaders that were into mental wellness and and, and mental health. Um, and then there were those that either didn't know or didn't know where to even start and how to engage their folks. Because it wasn't a conversation we were having prior to COVID. And then COVID threw everybody into this whirlwind of, of mental health. And so now I feel like there were those that got taken care of during the pandemic with this, this mental health awareness and then some returned back to their old habits post COVID and then some stayed in those good habits. So I think that step forward has come from the people that feel like now, okay, well, once everything opened up again, and once we started getting back to, you know, air quote business as usual, they felt like they had, they had a lot of catching up to do. And so it was back to the old habits and people have been pushing it harder. And, and so it's, I think the conversation needed to happen during COVID and it was happening on a pretty frequent basis. But I think now more than ever, law firms, in-house counsel teams need to be having this conversation and not only having the conversation, but doing something about it, putting actions in play, putting resources in play, whatever they could do. But the interesting um, juxtaposition to your perspective, which I share is the raging battle going on right now about return to the office. So it, it's it's a dilemma where there's more self-awareness, but at the same time, there's a tone deafness, which I find to be fascinating and, and a little disheartening. Uh, I 100% agree with you. And I think that that conversation alone, so you you know, let's let's walk back to the the, you know, the opening of the world again. And so everybody's, you know, I, did, I always talk in metaphors and, and visualization, but imagine everybody's, you know, coming out of this this cave, this locked cave, and all we're coming back into the sunshine of the world again. And some people are trying to readjust to the elements and they're trying to readjust to getting back to normal. And now all of a sudden you're getting emails from your managing partners or your executive team or your board saying, we're all getting back to the office as soon as possible. Well, that's, you're kind of not really, you're ripping the bandaid off a little too quick here. One of the things I wrestle with is that there's not a universal thread of mindfulness in the legal, mm-hmm. legal ecosystem, right? It's mm-hmm. whether you're talking about legal operations, whether you're talking about in-house legal departments or private practice, there's not really as much emphasis on what I would call intelligent design, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. built around developing holistic human beings. I always use the term that, that legal professionals are intellectual athletes who need oh, yes. rest and recovery and proper training. And I know you can think about when you played competitive football, college football, you had ice baths, you had trainers, you had off days, you had an off season. Mm-hmm. And yet we have this perception that legal professionals can work without, um, you know, being treated as well as athletes are when they're mental athletes, they're literally mental athletes. Oh, absolutely. And there, I've talked with, you know, the more mindful law firms, but also a lot of corporations, which, you know, law firms should take notes from corporations and how they run themselves as businesses. But you know, the one thing that was interesting that was there that came up in a discussion is, you know, we don't hesitate to say, hey, look, I'm not feeling well. I can't come in. I don't want to get anybody else sick. I need to take care of myself. I need to recuperate. I need to rest. When we say that, when it comes to the flu or a cold or something like that, people are like, yeah, no problem. You know, take a day off, take care of yourself, whatever. But if we're having a mental 
sickness day, if we're if we're struggling with our mental health or our our, our self respect or or something's just going wrong mentally, w- there's this stigma that goes with it. Like you can't call in mentally unwell because people will either write you off or or you know just just kind of put this tag on you that you're a problem. When in actuality, it is to your point. It's 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 in mental uh, mental athleticism. And if you're not resting your mind and you're not resting your emotions, you're not resting your soul, like you're going to burn out. It's just inevitable. It, it sure is. And that brings us to our guiding topic, which is discussing emotional intelligence, EQ, mm-hmm. why it matters and what it is. Um, you know, EQ's fascinated me. It's a skill that can actually be taught. Mm-hmm. And and that's refreshing. But can you can you start uh, for our listeners by giving them, you know, an overview of what emotional intelligence EQ, if you will, is. Yeah, absolutely. So emotional intelligence at its core is the understanding and awareness of your emotions and what you do with them, but also recognizing emotions in others and how you manage those relationships. And when I talk about what components make up emotional intelligence, because there are several schools of thought, but um, I keep it simple with the core four. So if you think about personal competency, it's self-awareness, which is understanding what your emotions are, and then self-management, what you do with them. So that's the personal competency side. And then you've got social awareness, which is understanding what other people are doing, what they're feeling, what they're saying, you know, active listening, looking at body position and, and things of that nature. And then how you're interacting together is relationship management. So those are the four core elements of emotional intelligence. You know, I like keeping it simple because it's easy to convey and remember. Um, but really, it's understanding like, what am I feeling? How am I feeling? Because most of us, I believe it's around 70% don't realize our emotions when we have them or feel them. Uh, we usually tack them on as a, a simple, I'm mad or I'm sad or I'm happy. But, you know, we don't flex our emotional thesaurus that much. And so we don't really pinpoint what the true feeling is or where the feeling is coming from. Uh, but then there's also self-management. And, you know, we can, we can joke in the legal industry, especially like we've, everybody's worked with at least one hothead. Um, and so those are the people that have those emotions that just don't know what to do with them. And whenever I present to organizations or firms or, or companies, I always tell them like, look, you're not going to be oblivious to bad moods. You're not going to be completely impenetrable to depression or sadness or frustration. You're going to feel those things because you're human. But it's what you do with them that has everything to say about how you act as an individual. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you, you've broken things down between self and social. And if mm-hmm. I remember one of your talks, you had an observation that what was that we tend to be better at the social than we are at the self. Mm-hmm. Can, can, you, can you elaborate on that? Sure. And I think especially in our industry, too, because we we often are i mean we're people pleasers by nature we're social animals by nature we want to make other people happy we want to make other people like us so we're paying attention to other people but when it comes to the self side of things there's a lot of introspection that has to happen you have to be able to admit what you're good at and what you're not good at you have to admit where where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are and when we're you know the foundation of our industry is built on perfectionism which is a falsity like you yes. you cannot be perfect for anybody that's listening like if you think you're perfect stop because it's just impossible um but we we pursue this perfection you know law school teaches us to be perfect and and get to the point where we not make mistakes and not that anybody wants to intentionally make mistakes but you have to give yourself grace to be human you're going to make mistakes you're going to have lapses in judgment and that's just human nature. So it's understanding that we have to look within ourselves and we have to admit where there's fault, where there's opportunity to grow, where we've made mistakes and what we can learn from them. But when you when you sit in front of a group of people like I do all the time, I'll sit in front of hundreds of attorneys and stare them in the face and say, look, you're, it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to understand that we all have faults and vulnerabilities. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the 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 sort of, triggers if you will for lawyers are the 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 inability to recognize when good enough is good enough mm-hmm. versus the need to strive for a higher level of quote perfection and i think that's a unique animal because that's not only um an unrealistic set of expectations that the lawyer places on itself himself mm-hmm. or herself or their self 
it's also an unrealistic um, expectation of their leadership uh-huh. to 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 always provide a high level of performance and not really calibrate when is good enough good enough not every every case is high stakes not every case can justify the amount of time you have put people put into put into it right uh-huh. and then you know it just sort of becomes sort of a crucible that that just hardens the pressure oh absolutely and and that you know, and, and you hit the nail on the head too, when it comes to what I call emotional contagion, or that is something where, you know, your emotions, how you portray yourself, how you carry yourself in meetings, how you talk to other people, it's like dropping, uh, you know, a, you know, I've got these flavored water things. So it's, you know, imagine taking like a flavored water droplet and dropping it in water. It's going to affect what that water is like from now on. So if you're that person going into meetings or you're talking with your team or you're talking with associates and you carry a negative attitude or an aggressive attitude, of course, that's going to affect people. You know, I've, I've unfortunately heard hallway screaming matches between attorneys because, uh, you know, a partner of some sort of clout feels like they have the right to talk to people the way that they want to. And there's been screaming and shouting and cursing, and it's, it, it, it's not hidden. It's blatantly in the hallway and everybody can hear it. That's just not, that's not the way you need to convey yourself as a leader by any means whatsoever. You know, and it's interesting because sports teams have traded star performers because they can't play on the team Mm. and and, you know they're just they may be very very good but they bring down the collective performance of everyone else and um in in law firms we don't trade star performers we allow them to be be who they are without moderation because we don't want to lose their revenue the other trigger that that i think um is important to talk about and you actually talked about this in one of your talks to a group of event planners, of uh-huh. which you are an alumni, and that's uh-huh. a perpetual sense of urgency. Uh-huh. Yeah, everything is last minute. Everything is on fire. Everything comes with this this you know siren and and light on top of it because everything's got to be done yesterday. And a lot of it is expectation setting. So when you know when I was in house at a, a couple of different law firms. I would have inevitably at least once a day, if not multiple times a day, somebody come to me like, oh, I need help with this and I need it today. When in actuality, had they, you know, it's usually a downhill run too. So it's a client calls or a client or a prospect emails or calls and says, hey, love to get this from you. And they freak out and think they forget to ask the question, like, when exactly do you need it by? Or what's, what's the best time to get it to you by? And if they would have just stopped for two seconds and asked that question, then a lot of the downhill panic could have stopped. But again, it's that people pleasing. They don't want to seem unresponsive. They don't want to seem unavailable. They don't want to seem like, you know, they're going to miss an opportunity if they don't get something back as quickly as possible. And so those are a lot of the instances where things just come in hot or, and, or there is, and, and, I'll call it faulty project management, where they've put something to the side to focus on a matter or focus on something else that's going on, and they've completely lost track of this other thing. And then once their attention gets opened back up, they're like, oh, I completely forgot about this thing. I can't tell you how many attorneys would come to me and have an RFP response that was due tomorrow. And I'd ask them, well, when did you get this? Oh, I got a couple of weeks ago, but I've been busy with this case. Okay, well, had you brought it to me two weeks ago, we could put together a masterpiece response. But now that I've got 24 hours to put together a response for a 50 page RFP, that's a struggle. Like I'll do my best. It's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hustle. So, you know, that's an interesting um, example. And and I think it's, it, it, it carries over into sort of the inherent power dynamic between partners and associates as well. Uh So you're fond of saying no is a complete sentence. Yes. And, you know, in those situations where you presented something unreasonable, you had to, you were in the very difficult position of saying, this isn't going to be perfect. But, you know, with respect to this power dynamic between partner and associate, um, how do you, what, what do you foresee as a way for the asymmetric, the person on the bottom side of the asymmetrical relationship? To have coping strategies, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I, I first would love to address the the front side of it too, because I think that's 
that's where you can stop the problem quicker. I, I, I've got great coping mechanisms for the associates, but one, over the last several years, I've had more and more conversations with either firms or attorneys who are looking to make a move simply because there's not this attitude of teamwork. And it is, you know, maybe it's a, a you know a rainmaker at a firm or you know a heavy heavy hitting partner or somebody that's got clouds or power in the in the organization, and they're just raining down this this intimidation on everybody else around them because they expect everybody just to kind of do what they want. And now, when you've got such a big battle for talent, you've got to understand number one the more you just completely bash on people or you know drive people to the wall or burn people out at your beck and call they're going to go somewhere else there's not there's not a shortage of need right now and, um, and, and to interrupt for just a second yeah i know you have data that talks about how well organizations perform when leadership oh, is emotionally intelligent versus how well they don't can you can you can you spin this into our little cycle of conversation? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so the teamwork thing, the retention is is one issue. Um, two, when it comes to client service and revenue growth, this is a huge factor. You know, if if I would say right now, and I I say this with absolute confidence, any team or specifically law firm that does not do in the next year some sort of emotional intelligence training to train their attorneys on how to be better communicators both internally and externally with clients and prospects, they are leaving millions of dollars on the table. I, I have no problem saying that because in two is the highest ROI activity that they'll do, period. Uh, be, simply because when, when I talk with in-house counsel or if I talk with legal ops execs that are looking to engage and have better relationships with law firms, one of the top things that's asked or the, the one of the, when I ask them like, what are your top requests for your firms or your teams that are working for you? They say, just communicate well. Just listen to us. And that that is at the core of social awareness with emotional intelligence. And so understanding that you can serve your clients better, you can have better relationships, you can answer phone calls and emails with empathy, which actually makes your client feel better. But to your point, when it comes to revenue growth, emotional intelligence helps organizations outperform their targets and their sales targets and their revenue growth targets by 20%. So just by taking some time to be more empathetic, just by taking some time to be better active listeners, to engage your internal team better and have a better attitude about how we can all serve the client as opposed to me telling you what to do, it is it is a cakewalk to make, make more sound decisions, have better retention, have better, happier clients, and you're going to have those clients refer other clients to you because you're going to be different in the marketplace. So if you want to be first, go for it. So the interesting thing is, is we talk a lot about retraining habits in response to triggers for individuals. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, mm -hmm. retraining habits for leaders mm -hmm. in an emotionally intelligent way, what is your view on how you accomplish that? Well, it, it all comes back to one, you need to want to make the change first. Because I can, I mean, I or anybody else can tell you what to do and how to change it. But if you don't care to change it, it's I, it's going to fall on deaf ears. So I think one, any habit is changeable, any habit. And I, you know, I, you mentioned the college football thing earlier. If I can go from somebody who loves food and at 260 pounds was proof that I loved food to now celebrating my 25th year of keeping off hundred pounds. I can tell you this, anybody can change their habits. If I can give up food or take better care of myself with food, then anybody can change anything. But when leaders change their communication habits, their emotional intelligence habits, they can make a profound impact, not only on their own personal and professional satisfaction and, and success, but also those around them, going back to the emotional contagion thing. But it's understanding what you're doing wrong, understanding or not what you're doing wrong, but what you could be doing better how you can be communicating more effectively, how can you be how you could be taking better care of yourself too because I think there's also this dynamic within law firms specifically in in corporate settings as well that you've you've achieved this level so therefore you know if you are successful or you're a VP or you're a managing partner or you're a practice group chair whatever it is rainmaker whatever title you have that you're doing great and we'll just stop there Yes. And that's not always the case. I have talked with numerous, very respected, you know, sometimes feared, but very successful attorneys. 
And I have talked with them very candidly in closed door settings where they'll just flat out admit, I don't have it all together. I'm hanging on by a thread on those days. And unfortunately, one of the triggers for ALM's focus on, on mental health in the legal profession was that several high performing lawyers who appeared to have it all, you know, ended their own lives, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, um, it was proof that while you can have all of the external appearances of success and competence, you can have a raging inferno inside. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the main reasons I do what I do, kind of going back to the origin story, is that having been on the other side of those conversations, those things are fixable with the right amount of work, with the right amount of attention, and with the right amount of desire to want to do better. And I don't mean just the individuals wanting to do better for themselves. It's the firm setting forth a culture of letting it be and, and almost demanding it to be okay to be, you know, to seek out help, to find balance in your work, to not have to work ungodly amounts of hours to get things done. And I've seen there were several firms that I talked with during the pandemic and they've stayed you know consistent with their their behavior and the performance and culture that they have rewarded their attorneys for exercising for getting out and about for taking care of their mental health and that I applaud that all day long and they're going to you know again it all comes back to serving the person so they can serve the business because if the people are burnt out they're not going to be performing at a high level they're not going to be doing their best work if you give them the space and the grace and the resources to do better by themselves, they're going to give you high quality work, high quality engagement, high quality leadership, high quality client service. Just down the board, it's all the positives. I think I think that um, really what it boils down to is once firm leaders see the economic benefit, mm-hmm. they'll embrace it. Now, whether their motivator is profit versus you know actually caring for the humans and wanting to develop them as fully optimized people is a is a dilemma for another day but you are right it is tangible that when you when you when you treat people right when you invest in them when you train them right when you give them the right team behind them they perform better and more profitably oh absolutely and and it's i i love that you brought it up because it is. It's an unfortunate reality of the industry. Um, and I had I've worked with several law firms where you know, we'll do some pre-event planning calls and um, prep for firm retreats or whatnot, and, and all attorney meetings. And the first question is, how do you deal with people that don't want to be there? And like, oh, I expect them to be there because I will. You know, law of averages, there will be at least one that does not want to be in that room, that does not want to listen to me talk about what they, you know, the soft skills stuff, which is actually critical skills. But they don't, you know, they don't want to be there. So I present my content out of the gate and I say, look, you're either going to benefit from this personally and you're going to find a wealth of benefits for yourself and you're going to be happier and more successful. But also these things are going to help you make more money. So you can pick whichever path you want to go on this. You can listen with whatever, whatever filter you want to listen. But I guarantee you, those that people that don't want me to be there that hear me say this will help you make more money and give better client service are in it. And at some point they cross over. And they're going to figure out that they they too can do better by themselves personally. So you use the phrase um, that I think is important, which is people always describe these intangibles that aren't really wrapped up in substantive and technical expertise as soft skills. Mm-hmm. But you've reframed it and others have reframed it as critical skills. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell our listeners why. Sure. Yeah. So I one... I, that is one of my biggest soapboxes. Uh, I I can't stand when people call it soft skills because, you know, you you mentioned earlier um, uh, part of the part of the idea that performance is based around emotional intelligence that you can raise your emotional intelligence, which is accurate. You know, your IQ hits a certain point and it doesn't change, but your emotional intelligence, your EQ, can be improved with you know different tactics. And I you know I tell people all the time it's easy, it's free, it's quick, and it, most times it's fun to do these things. Um, but when we, when we start improving ourselves and when we start focusing in on how we can be better and raise our performance, it becomes a much easier road to toe because we are engaged in better conversations. We are, we are really more focused on how we can be better overall. Um, and so when we talk about critical skills, I always liken it to the fact, okay, you could take the smartest attorney. You can have somebody that knows everything about employment law 
They can know it backwards and forwards, state by state. They can know every detail. That's great. But if they can't communicate, if they can't maintain their temper, if they can't have conversations and, and engage in active listening, it doesn't matter. Imagine, you know, and I was, the, the fun thing I like to do with attorneys too, is put the shoe on the other foot, put them in a situation like you've all bought a nice car at some point, probably you've all stayed at a nice hotel at some point, probably. If you went into your favorite hotel and your favorite vacation, and you spent tons of money to go stay at, we'll say the Ritz. And you said, this is what I prefer. This is what I would like. This is how I would like my room. This is, these are my preferences. Can you tell me an Italian restaurant I can go to? If that person's not listening to you and sends you to a Greek restaurant when you ask for Italian, which you can't really go wrong either way. But if you went to, if they gave you the wrong thing because they weren't paying attention, you'd be upset. So imagine your client who is paying you millions of dollars and you're not paying attention to them and you're sending bills the wrong way. You're doing things the wrong way. You're not communicating appropriately just because they've simply asked you to do things, things a certain way. How do you think they feel? You know, it's interesting because it, it, it's even more granular than that. When you're not able to actively listen and you're in a dialogue or you're, 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 you're digging in with a client on a deep issue, and you ask them questions, or you make statements because you haven't heard them. So you're making them on a false premise, and mm-hmm. immediately jeopardizes the 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 trust in the relationship. Oh, absolutely, it does. And I, I tell attorneys all the time, like as you're engaging clients, the one thing that you need to do, and this is this puts a little bit of fear into people because of the perfectionism piece of it, is that when they explain something, like if your client calls and says, "Hey, I've got this thing I need to work on," gives you some details. Take a couple seconds and repeat back what you heard and just confirm that you're hearing the things that you that you think you're hearing. Because on both sides, there's agitation and there's panic. There's problematic scenarios. I mean, nobody calls an attorney because everything's great. You know, there's something that needs to be fixed. Or something, you know, there's a there's a even if you're growing as a company, even if you're acquiring another company because you're so successful, there's still some nervousness and trepidation there. So there's right. emotions within that legal interaction that are really dynamic. I think Stephen Covey used to call that the ape habit, where, <laughs> yep. where you'd say, so if I heard you, I want to make sure I heard you, your mm-hmm. position is X. And that doesn't just apply to clients. It applies to when you're interacting with a partner and interacts, mm-hmm. it, it applies when you're interacting with you know, your family, actually. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Or and I, and I, I had one person ask me, well, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm not paying attention. I'm like, Actually, no, that shows that you're paying attention if you repeat back. And if if you say something that didn't match up with what they were saying, they're not going to say, no, you didn't hear me right. They may say, no, 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 what I meant was. Right. And so they're going to just repeat back and confirm what they said. So you had, um, you've talked about some, some interesting statistics mm-hmm. and I, I want to go through them a little bit and also kind of dig into what their origin is. Mm-hmm. Um. I think I think you said in the past, 42% of your work is based on your substantive skills and knowledge. 58% of your work is your emotional intelligence. And 90% of top performers have a high IQ. Mm-hmm. Um, EQ, not IQ. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So where does that data come from? And how was it, how did it get categorized so that so that it's a very vivid bit of imagery, especially oh, yeah, in the pie chart? Yeah. So when uh, so when I started diving into my setting of emotional intelligence, a lot of the content came from Dr. Travis Bradbury's research. Um, I've also worked with numerous uh, researchers in in the field as well, specifically in the legal field. Dr. Larry Richard is another one that I've studied for years. I got to speak with him at the Legal Ops Conference, LegalOps.com conference. Um, but it, it comes from a variety of resources uh, and research. But Dr. Travis Bradbury and Dr. Larry Richard are the two main sources that I've gone to for these for this data. Um, but it is, it's shocking when you think about, you know, kind of going back to the critical skill piece, if 42% of your, of your performance as an individual, as a professional is based on your knowledge and your tactical skills and your objective skills, but 58% is based on how you interact, communicate, listen, treat other people. I I'll bet on the person that's got a high EQ and maybe a little bit lower knowledge than somebody who knows everything perfectly, but can't talk correctly or can't listen appropriately. I think that people can always get compliments to where they may be short substantively, Mm -hmm. but when they are interacting with a client, 
it's not as easy to call in reinforcements if you haven't developed that emotional intelligence. Oh my gosh, no. And I've got war stories galore of people that have shared, you know, and I've seen some firsthand too, people that just erupt on the spot, people that are prickly in conversation, are, you know, condescending in conversation, even to clients. I, I've I've heard I've overheard conversations or I've heard stories from clients when they're sharing some information that some of the things I'm just aghast. Like I wouldn't let my I wouldn't let my kids treat anybody anybody else with that kind of respect, much less attorneys treating their clients that way. So it's it's a, it's a big differentiator. And again, it's it just comes back to doing the right thing. I, I was the is it the platinum rule of treat others how they want to be treated, not treat others how you want to be treated. And so if you engage those people and find out how you're being more empathetic and how you're communicating appropriately and what they need, it makes your life a lot easier. And speaking of, you know, research and proof too, it's a lot easier to grow a client than it is to go get a new one. Oh, it, for sure. Yeah. Anybody who's been in the legal services business as long as I have um, can tell you that growing your desk, your current desk is exponentially easier and more lucrative than the time spent having to replace a client and, and find a new one. And I always used to tell my associates when I practiced, just remember there's not air traffic control where opportunities and clients are circle, cir circling, <laughs> waiting to <laughs> land on your desk. <laughs> right. When you have a client, like when you have a client, it's important that you develop that cohesiveness because you will make mistakes, but you have to have a relationship where, where they'll um, give you grace. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it, it's really interesting to me how, um, how, how um, often people don't remember that there's that getting a client is a lot harder than keeping a client. You keep a client, oh, they keep hiring you. You lose a client, there's nobody necessarily going to land their helicopter on your your landing pad and replace that revenue. Right. And having done a lot of business developing development coaching too, I can't tell you, I've always had a dollar for every time I heard an attorney saying, I don't want to do this stuff. Well, of course you don't. You want to be billing matters. You want to be growing your revenue and book of business. So and just imagine there's an additional level of fear there to say, look, if you don't take care of your clients and take care of your team appropriately and keep things floating along the way it should, it, it will naturally grow. But if you don't, if you don't learn how to manage your emotional intelligence, you don't manage your stress or anxiety or your communication ability, that client's going to walk because firms are competitively trying to take clients away from each other. And so, you know, one, losing a client's never fun, but two, now you got to go back out and find a new client. So the fear of doing business development and you know sales for for lack of a better word should be, be an an additional motivator to make sure that you're taking care of what's currently in house there's a couple of um things that i think intersect with sort of the central eq thesis mm -hmm. and that is self respect and negative self talk Mm -hmm. And how right. those, the intersection between how important addressing those things are to raising your EQ curve, mm -hmm. climbing the EQ curve. Can you, right. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I'll be honest. I mean, this is something that I battled for years and years and still, you know, I don't think we ever get a, you know, I don't think anybody ever has a hundred percent positive voices in their head. As a matter of fact, you know, the, there was data that shows that we have around 60,000 thoughts a day. And I want to say it's only about 20% of them are positive. The other yes. ones are either neutral or negative. So if you imagine, and I'm terrible at math, which is why I'm not an accountant, but you know, if you imagine that high volume of thoughts that go through your head and if they're either negative or neutral, you're not giving yourself a whole lot of positive grace. No, so that, that positive mentality, that mental self-talk that is so critical that is so important to engage that. And some people, you know, I, I'm a Saturday Night Live freak. So I remember the days when Stuart Smalley would look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. It's not necessarily that, but it's understanding like, hey, look, my self-respect says I need to take better care of myself. My self-respect says I deserve to sleep. I deserve to take better care of my body. I deserve to have five minutes to meditate over lunchtime. Like whatever you need that self-respect because you are your own your own your own advocate and if you're not speaking up and taking care of yourself who is 
Well, and if you think about it, the negative self-talk that runs to our head, some of it we're aware of. Some of it runs in the deep background in our, you know, our neural processing system. We're not even aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really why, you know, I think modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy and even mm-hmm. some of the habits you've talked about in your, your prior talks that have elements mm-hmm. of, of that are so important because mm-hmm. for the voices you do hear, you often have to retrain the dialogue. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and you, you made a great point. Like you're kind of fighting an uphill battle anyway, with the way we're wired. And so if I, if I have this predisposed set of thoughts that are going to be negative or not as positive as I would like them to be anyway, I always err on the side of being overly positive on the things that I can control. And I remember, you know, ironically, a friend of mine who was an attorney called me out one day because of my social media feed. And she said, there's no way that somebody can be this positive all the time. And I said, you're right. I'm not. But nine times out of 10, when I, because I'm a quote poster and a motivator, you know, I post videos all the time with positive self-talk. And I said, I post those things because most of them are for me. Like if somebody else benefits from it, great. But when I post a quote, I'm reading it, I'm finding it, I'm, I'm putting it out on my social media feed. And there's no way I can't own up to that. But also I'm notified all day long of people liking it, commenting on it, sharing on it. So it keeps popping up. So that one quote that I put out, I probably see it a hundred times a day. So it's actually influencing me as well because of the, 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 the comeback on it. Yeah. I think that feedback and response loop is critical. Uh Um, Earlier this year, when I was taking the train to New York to go to the, uh, what they call legal week, Uh I was reading a book called getting to neutral written by a guy named Trevor Moed who worked with lots of professional athletes and who worked very closely, for instance, with Nick Saban at Alabama. And the notion is, is that when these mistakes happen, when these hard things happen, the key is to get your breath and to shift into neutral, to stop uh-huh. asu- to stop catastrophizing about it, but shift into neutral so you can make a decision, what do I do next? Uh-huh. And that's how you get a quarterback to shake off an interception. That's how you get you know, a, a, an attorney or a consultant to shake off a, a, a misunderstanding. And I tell most of the, you know, consultants I work with, there's very few things we can't fix if you don't panic. If right. you don't panic and you shift into a neutral mentality, we can work through a solution, communication with the client, fixing it, you know. Right. Yeah. And I, I love that mentality. And obviously Nick Saban is a perfect example of how you can become successful over the long haul with that. But, you know, even yeah, I, I coached my son's flag football team this past season and we, I had a kid, one of my best players on the team made a bad play. You know, he, he gave up the ball, gave up a, a, a turnover and he came over to the side and he was very upset. And I looked at him and I said, can you fix that? Can you change that? Can you go back and make that not happen? He goes, no. And I said, okay, then take 10 seconds, take a big, deep breath. Focus on what you can handle and what you can control moving forward and focus on that instead because I need you. I need you at your best. And he changed again, wound up having a huge touchdown later on because of that fact. Yeah. And I think that is the perfect advice for for athletes, for lawyers, for family members, for Mm -hmm. just about everyone. Don't ruminate over what you can't fix, ruminate over what you can do um, going forward. One of the things that that I always talk about, and I think I've picked this up in in your work as well, is part of this development of EQ and actually reinforcing your self-respect is learning to speak in your own voice. Uh And it's interesting because I think sometimes remembering back when I was a practicing lawyer and a young lawyer, you know, by default, sometimes you emulate behavior. Uh-huh. And at some point you may or may not get to the realization that that's not you. And uh-huh. how, do, how do you in your coaching business and in your work help people find their own voice and, their, and understand who they are in terms of how they communicate, how they process information, how uh-huh. they relate to others? Because it's so easy in a profession fr- from ours with that toxic contagion uh, uh, of not always um, healthy behavior to sort of get sucked into that. Well, and and the first thing I, I talk with people about, because I also do a lot of like uh, presentation and speaker coaching too, is, 
you know, you can go out and sound like anybody else. It's easy to do. Like you just go watch somebody's video and, you know, pick up the patterns of how they talk and things like that. But also we, we tend to play it safe. You know, we, we want to say the things that are liked. We want to say the things that are popular. We want to say the things that are going to get us the best response. And so we play it safe more times than not. And what I always tell people is I want you to dig into what truly makes you who you are. Why do you want to talk? Why do you want to do these things? Why do you want to get that promotion? Why do you want to move up to partner? Why, you know, what are the goals behind what you're trying to accomplish for you, not anybody else? I don't care what anybody else thinks. But what is important to you? What do you want the world to know that you have to say? And so we dig into, I mean, I ask, I, I kind of almost turn into a, a five-year-old again, my five-year-old self, keep going back to that. But I keep asking why, why do you want to say that? Why this? Why this? How, why do you want to say it that way? And we dig, 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 dig until they hit and you can see it come over somebody's face when they say it out loud, because it almost startles them a little bit when they hear themselves say out loud what they've been saying internally for so long that they've kept quiet because they didn't want to you know, put themselves at risk or they didn't want to say something different or they didn't, they were just scared of their own voice. But authenticity is the most intoxicating feeling in the entire world. The rush of saying what you want to say and putting it out in the world and understanding that it's important to you and it's your perspective is, is incredible. I talk with people all the time. They're like, oh, I want to talk about this topic, but there's hundreds of other people that talk about it. I'm like, there are hundreds of other people that talk about emotional intelligence, but nobody says it the way that I do. Nobody's been through my experiences. Nobody's seen or heard what I've seen. So nobody else can replicate what I have to say, nor do I want to try to replicate somebody else's point of view. So it's that authenticity that is a key factor then. And I, and I think when you feel the epiphany, mm -hmm. the, the rush is so great. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really, you know, the magic of finding your own voice is it empowers you in so many other ways. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I, I love, I, I need to, and two, I think the one thing that I pride myself on is the authenticity of how I share myself on social media and my presentations, just in inner everyday conversations. Um, and the fact that I'm, I'm perfectly flawed. Like I, I have my, my faults. I have my things that I've done wrong in the past. I have had my dark moments just like everybody else has. And I think nothing drives me crazier. It, I mean, and, and I've I've sat in the audience and it's always funny when people know that I'm a, a public speaker and I go see a public speaker, they immediately turn to me and say, well, what'd you think? And the first comment you'll get from me, if somebody is trying to portray this perfectionism, because I sat in the audience one time where this person got up there and just talked about themselves the entire time and how perfect their life was and how fantastic everything was and how golden plated everything was. And I said, I didn't care for that at all. I have no connection to that person. I don't know what it feels like to be perfect, nor do I ever want to. And nor do I ever want to be in a position where I feel like I have to tell everybody what's right with me, as opposed to saying what wasn't right and got right. People yeah. are starving for authenticity. They're yes. starving for it. And I think especially in this age. Can we mm -hmm. talk a little bit before we before we close about you know, taking control back, managing your triggers, um, uh -huh. because, because you have some, I think, wise perspective. I think identifying what our triggers are is the first thing, because I feel like there are times and we just float through the day, especially in our industry, everybody's so busy and that we've got back-to-back -back meetings and we just brush by things that trigger us. And you mentioned it earlier. It's, it's like that, that back of the mind stress that just sits. And I always say, it's like that app that you left open on your phone that's pulling on your battery that you forgot to close it. And we don't address those triggers. And so I always recommend for people to take a few minutes at lunch and a few minutes before they wrap up the day and reflect back on, you know, if you're doing it at lunch, reflect back from, you know, from that point back to the, when you got up that morning. And when it's at the end of the day, reflect back to lunch and figure out the things that changed your perspective, changed your mood, changed your energy. What were those things? Who, who was it? What were they talking about? How did they talk about it? What, what did it make you feel? And if you can identify those things, then you can change the behavior. I had a guy that we had a standing meeting every Thursday and it would stress me out on Wednesday because I would have be having lunch in my office, looking at my calendar for the next 24 hours to make you know preparation plans for all my meetings coming up. And I would see that calendar. I knew it was there every week. It was a standing recurring meeting. But when I saw it on my calendar and I paid attention to it from 11 o'clock or 1130 on Wednesday to at least 7 p.m. on Thursday, I was stressed out because of this one guy. 
And it didn't dawn on me until one day I started doing this exercise where I was like, why am I so upset? Why am I so stressed out? And I pinpointed it. And I said, it's because of that stupid meeting and that stupid attorney that talks to everybody like he's like he's God's gift to, to human, you know, humankind, and he's condescending as hell. It wasn't until I put that down and on paper and said, this is exactly why I'm stressed out for almost 36 hours a week because of this guy. And so once I realized it, I could change the behavior. I quit getting stressed out. I quit trying to predispose what he was going to do because a lot of times I'd get upset and he wouldn't even make the meeting. So I, was, I just spent 24 hours being stressed out for nothing. Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting because you've talked about journaling and, you know, the word, the word itself is a trigger. Oh, sure. Uh, because, and I, I think the way you describe this sort of end of the day, midday reflection, what's really important is the journaling doesn't mean you have to write sonnets to yourself, no. nor no. do you have to, um, it's really about just matter of factly saying what happened mm-hmm. and, and, and what made you feel in the moment, like you felt, especially when you've had an unsettling event, it, it doesn't oh, yeah. have to be um, sophisticated writing. Again, it's a tactical no. tool to identify, um, how things are, what, what events and what things are causing you to have a reaction of some type, physical, yeah. mental, emotional. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and since we've talked about sports a couple of times, think about every halftime show you've ever watched. You know, if you, you know, unfortunately my chiefs lost last night to the Packers, but during the halftime, they always say, let's look back at the first half. What happened in the first half? Where are we at now? So if you look at that, instead of saying journaling, you know, it's a reflection, call it your halftime report. You know, your lunchtime is your halftime report. What happened in the first half of the day? Well, let's recap. I went to the meeting at eight o'clock and -and so-and-so was an absolute jerk. And that just hit my emotions on a whole different level. So I'm struggling in the first half because of that fact. So look at it as like a halftime report or a post-game report where you're looking back on what happened prior to that caused you to be in the position you are now. Identify it, create a strategy and move on. 100%. and I think it's important that that we've clarified that journaling doesn't have to be a love letter to yourself. Like that, I'm not I'm not journaling at all. Like I I literally sit there for like five ten minutes and just reflect back on the day and reflect back. And then you know again using sports sports analogies here. Everybody everybody who's ever watched a football game, you hear the word halftime adjustment or the phrase halftime adjustment. Right. So teams are struggling in the first half. Well, how are they going to react in the second half? What are they going to do different? Look at your lunchtime the same way. Make your halftime adjustments so that you can have a better second half. Um, tell me about other ways you can take back control. Um, mm-hmm. you, you use a phrase that I, I really love, which is feet shoulder width apart. Yep. Talk about that and talk about ways in which you can make sure your feet are shoulder width apart. Sure. So um, the the origin of that was back to my college football days when, again, I was a you know a big run stopping two hundred and sixty pound inside linebacker. So I was a big dude, and I got hit so hard one night by one of my own teammates in a practice scrimmage that he sent me not just flat to the ground, but sent me horizontal. And I, but at the same time, like I was not in a good base. I was my my feet were crossed over. He caught me at the right time. And it made me remember back when I was in high school, I had an offensive line coach, God rest his soul, Joe Amos, who was phenomenal. And he always said, if you have your feet shoulder width apart, it's harder to knock you down. If your feet and you can move quicker, you can adjust quicker. If your feet are too wide, you're too slow and you can't, you have to take a step to base and then make a move because you have to regather yourself and your feet are too narrow. You're vulnerable. You're going to get knocked completely flat if you get hit the right way. And it's the same way with life. If we have our feet shoulder width apart, if we're taking care of ourselves, if we're investing in our our self-care, if we're taking care of our self-respect, if we're raising our emotional intelligence, our feet are more balanced, they're stronger, and they're more shoulder width apart. If we're too burnt out, we're completely too narrow. We get knocked down too easily. Or if we're just not paying attention to to our world, it's going to take us some time to regather ourselves. If you're not tuned into yourself, you're going to have to, you're going to have your feet too wide and you have to reshuffle yourself. But it really is all about maintaining balance and making sure that you can withstand anything that comes your way. So what are some of the strategies that get you to that balance? Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. what for, for getting back to kind of um, one of my, my early questions about that asymmetric relationship, if mm-hmm. you're an associate or a junior partner, 
what are some right. of the ways in which you can get your feet shoulder width apart and you can, you know, reclaim some of your agency? What are some of the techniques you recommend? Sure. Yeah. One, I think um, calendar blocking is a big, big deal. Um, I think so many times we let our calendars be at the mercy of those that just want to take time from us. So what I highly encourage is, you know, even if it's five minute, 10 minute increments that you can just set after meetings or in the middle of the day, in the middle of the afternoon, where you can just have five or 10 minutes to catch your breath, you know, again, reestablish your, your foundation and find time just to, just to take care of you. Because again, I think we get to a point where we're in this downhill run of a day and it's meeting after meeting, after meeting, after meeting, after meeting. And if you're not stopping at some point and gathering yourself, imagine trying to run down a hill that's getting steeper and steeper and steeper. You're going to lose your balance at some point. So to, you know, to go back to the balance metaphor, like it's, it's critical to take that time. And also that self-respect factor. There's a lot of times where I've been on the back end or I've been on the, the front end of taking somebody's wrath. And my main coping mechanism is it's, you know, not, you know, if there is fault by me, so be it. But based on the response that I get or based on how somebody talks to me, or if it's something that has nothing to do with me, I just basically say, look, that wasn't because of me. It was because of something else that's going on. They're under pressure for something from something else. I can't take it personally. And that in of itself is a hard thing to do, but it is one of the most critical pieces of my own self-care and my own balance to say, hey, look, I just got to keep moving. If I sit there, it's kind of like going back to the, the the conversation we had about making mistakes and leaving leaving them behind. If you sit there and stay mad at that person that talked meanly to you or stressed you out, and you're just staying stressed out all day long because of that one person, you're not. You're looking backwards the entire time. You're not looking forward to what you need to be doing. A therapist that I worked with years ago framed it like this: You have in your head a movie, uh, mm. in a script. And you expect the characters in your movie and script to respond a certain way. And when they don't, it's not because they are rejecting you. It's because they have their own movie and script. And yeah. often, you know, your characters don't behave because they're running their own movie. It has nothing to do with you. Yeah. And in the four agreements, they talk about the same thing where it's just everybody's accountable for their own impression and their own, uh, uh, you know, their, their own assumption of things. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't have anything to do with you. And so it's, it's really clearly, I like that, that the movie, they, that he uses the word dreams, same way. Like everybody's kind of living their own dream in their own life and you over overlap, but sometimes you don't realize what they're bringing to the table or bringing to the conversation. So it's, it is critical to understand that, you can't take everything personally and you need to just be able to, to let things slide off when they, and, it, and again, we're human. We're going to take some pain from that, but I can't control anybody else. I can't make somebody be nice to me, but I can sure control how much impact they have. Me. I think, you know, it was Victor Frankl that between stimulation and response or space. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Victor Frankl. And then it was um, absconded with by others in the self-help <laughs> world. But, yeah. you know, one of the things we talked about is we talk about sometimes is breathing. Uh -huh. And, you know, for me, breathing is just a way of putting space between stimulus and response because it's that stop gap. Right. It, it kind of deflates the emotion that's going to lead to an escalation or it kind of pushes more oxygen to the brain. Huh? <laughs> yeah, no. That I, I completely agree. I think, I've, and I've seen it work powerfully in a couple of different ways. One, if you take just a quick beat breath, it brings your anxiety down. It brings your blood pressure down, but it also gives you a couple of seconds to gather your thoughts before you just respond. Because I think so many times we just want to respond as quickly as possible because we feel that that's the necessary move. Um, and, or to say like, you know, let me, let me sit on that for a second. Let me think about that for a second. That's okay to say that too. And it buys you time to breathe and think. The other thing that I heard the other day that was genius, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, um, who I saw this on, it was, he's, he's famous for giving some advice on, on, on Instagram, but he mentioned when somebody is condescending or aggressive towards you to repeat, to, to look at them. So if you, if you said something to me that was condescending, instead of me reacting or taking it personally, especially if we're in a room full of people to say, Mark, I, you know, could you, could you repeat that for me? Number one it buys you time. It puts the pressure back on them. And if they're being condescending and you just say, can you repeat that for me, please? 
it gives it actually and he he put it beautifully. He goes, it actually makes makes them look more like a jackass than it does you look like a victim. Well, the interesting thing is I read that same thing and I can't remember who wrote it. <laughs> yeah. And it is. It's, it's recent. It's, it was pretty yeah, recent. It's right? very recent. He said, yeah, just say, would you mind repeating that for me, please? Well, Rich, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with me and being such an enthusiastic and knowledgeable guest. Well, um, I appreciate the invitation. Considering I met you for the first time at Running Legal Like a Business and walked up to you in your bright blazer um, <laughs> and said, hey, will you be on a podcast that um, hasn't even restarted yet? And you said, uh, yes, instantly. Uh, means <laughs> a lot to me. And I know it'll mean a lot to our listeners because um, you dispense some wise advice. And I think that it's important for people to recognize that there are lots of things they can change uh -huh. to become more effective. And that just because, you know, we can't change our IQ doesn't mean we can't be successful because there's many other intangibles, critical skills we can develop. Absolutely. So, thank you so much for being a guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank can you, you can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Sure. The easiest place to go is richbracken.com. Um, I, I can share the link and they can look it up in the show notes or whatever, but uh, everything that you need to find from me is there. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn all the time. So, but you can find all my social links, videos, content, my podcast, everything is on uh, richbracken.com. Thank you for listening to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal community. This podcast has been brought to you by Mark Yakino Untethered. You can reach me at myakino25 at gmail. You can also reach me on Instagram at myakino25. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the stories we have to tell and share both now and in the coming months.